Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Sheldon Harnick set out to be a violinist and ended up as one of the great lyricists on Broadway. And in the summer of 2013, he visited Logan for events with the Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater. While he was in town, he came to our studios for a conversation with me. We talked about his mentor, E.Y. Yip Harburg, working with Jerry Bach and Richard Rogers and other composers, and the enduring legacy of Fiddler on the Roof. Hope you stay tuned next for uh, our conversation from the summer of 2013. We're pleased to have as our guest uh, this hour... Uh, award-winning and uh, legendary lyricist Sheldon Harnick. He is lyricist, along with Jerry Bach, of uh, great musicals, including Fiddler on the Roof, She Loves Me, Fiorello, and uh, many others. And Sheldon Harnick, uh, an honor to welcome you in. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So um, I want to uh, get into, of course, uh, some of the the great musicals. Uh, I understand that you set out to be a violinist. That's right. My mother... Uh, when, uh, when I was very young, my mother wanted me to join that company of Heifetz and Milstein and all those. So I was a fiddle player, and that lasted until I was, I was at Northwestern University actually studying the violin, but a classmate of mine introduced me to the album of Finian's Rainbow. And once I heard that, it changed my life. I thought, I want to write, be able to write lyrics such as uh, E.Y. Harburg did for that show. So it was the lyrics that stood out to you? Yes. I am primarily a lyricist. I have done uh, some composing, but I'm primarily a lyricist. Mm-hmm. So you went to the Army and uh, came out? And, uh, <clears throat> I was in the Army for three years. Yeah, it was the Civil War. And <laughs> it, was, it was World War II. And uh, actually, that three-year experience was another reason why I did not pursue a violin career. Uh, for three years when I should have been practicing the violin, uh, I didn't have the violin with me. So that was just three wasted years. And when I came out, it was very hard to make up for that. Mm -hmm. You went to Northwestern University. I went to Northwestern. I went there because, excuse me, when I was in high school, I was in my high school orchestra, and there was another student, a friend, who was a year ahead of me. And when he graduated, he went to Northwestern, and he took me out to Northwestern several times to see their college show. It was called the WAMU Show, which was uh, the abbreviation for the Women's Athletic Association and the Men's Union, the WAMU. But it was a very lavish show, uh, and critics came from all over the area to see it. Among other things, there was an extraordinary talent pool at Northwestern with people like uh, Carlton Heston, you know, a a wonderful group of uh, student performers so that between the writers and the performers and the lavishness of the show, uh, that was very influential on me. Mm. I'm I'm imagining Charlton Heston doing musical reviews. Did he? he... (laughs) I don't know that he was in any of those shows. His his name comes to mind because a friend called me one day and said, uh, you want to be in a a student film uh, that's being made down at the Rosenwald Museum, which was on the south side of town. But the Rosenwald Museum... Uh, looked very much, looked very Roman. And they were filming Julius Caesar with uh, Carlton Heston as Julius Caesar. So I went there and they gave me a toga and they gave me sandals. And they, we were in the scene where we said, read the will, read the will. 
Years later, after Carlton Heston had become a big star, they released the movie in New York, and I went to see it, and my scene wasn't there. So I asked my friend, I said, what happened? He said, oh, some idiot standing next to us had a a wristwatch on. (laughs) Otherwise, I I wouldn't be sitting here. I would be in Hollywood today. They they cut out an an anachronism, I guess. Right, yes. You were a victim of that. So uh, you, was it during college, you determined... I want to go to Broadway. I want to be a lyricist. It was. It was, I think, my third year at Northwestern. One of my classmates uh, had uh, quite a career in television later. Her name was Charlotte Ray. And Charlotte had gone to New York over the Christmas holiday and seen Finian's Rainbow. And when she came back, she sought me out and she loaned me the album and said, Sheldon, you have to hear this. And when I did, I thought, that's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. So after I graduated... um, Today in Chicago, I could have made a living in the musical theater, but at that time, which was 1950, it was not possible. I knew that I had to come to New York to do that, so I did. So listening to Finian's Rainbow, uh, what was it about those lyrics that uh, made you want to do that? It was their intelligence. It was their playfulness. It was uh, his his, uh, way with words that was so witty, and it was such fun. And I liked what he was saying, and I thought, what he was saying could very well be controversial, but he made you listen to it just by his wit. And I thought that would be a career worth following, to be able to say important things and to say them in such a way that you made people listen. Later on, you got to meet Harburg. I did, yes. We did. uh, I I considered myself, uh, well, I considered him my mentor, and uh, he gave me some wonderful advice. Uh, uh, I met him on a number of occasions. And the last time I met him, we had been in a seminar. Uh, It was a college in Texas that trained people for the hotel industry. It was two days, five hours each day. And at the end of that time, he said, let's go for a walk. And I was exhausted. So I said, no, I'm going to go to bed. And he just bounced off into the night. He was in his 80s with endless energy. And that was the last time I saw him. He uh, was killed in an automobile accident shortly after Mm. that. Now, of course, you uh, studied violin, you, uh, you have composed, but uh, you, you decided to be a lyricist. I did. I did. Um, one of the reasons was that my instrument was the violin. Had I been a pianist, I might have pursued a composing career, but it was very hard for me to, to work uh, at the piano. I'm a good musician, and eventually I did do uh, a couple of shows where I did, <clears throat> I did the music as well as the lyrics, but um, it was easier to do lyrics. Mm-hmm. And I was reading somewhere, listening to a, another interview, that, that somebody gave you the advice that there are a lot of good composers, but maybe a, a, a bit of a, a dearth of good lyricists. So become that a lyricist. was Yip Harburg. He okay. said, in his experience, there were more capable theater composers than there were lyricists. And that was one of uh, the, the pieces of advice he gave me. He said, you can facilitate your career by not only writing your own music, but by working with a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. And eventually that led to me meeting and working with Jerry Bach. So there, I, I imagine there, there were some years of struggle. You, you didn't hit it immediately, not until you met Jerry Bach, and, and you two didn't hit it immediately. No, I came to New York in 1950. Um, my first song in a Broadway show was in 1952. I had a, so, uh, a song in the show, New Faces of 52, sung by Alice Ghostly. It was called The Boston Begin, and it was hugely successful. She stopped the show with it every night, and I thought to myself, well, I've only been in New York two years, and already I've made it. 
and I hadn't made it. What that show did for me was that I got phone calls from an endless number of young women performers saying, can you write me a song like the Boston <laughs> Beginning? I said, no. So it took another uh, six years before I finally became financially solvent. The first uh, book musical that I did with Jerry Bach uh, was a failure. It was called The Body Beautiful. And I thought my career was over. I thought I was going to have to go uh, work in a shoe store or something. But a year later, Jerry and I were invited to do the lyrics for Fiorello, uh, the, the, uh, a musical about New York's mayor. <clears throat> Hal Prince had seen The Body, Body Beautiful, and he liked what we did. So he invited us to do that show. It was a success, and it allowed me to work as a lyricist. Mm. So what, what kept you going? What was the goal? You, you wanted to, to, to do what as a lyricist? Well, I found that I loved musical theater. Mm. I loved uh, going to it. I loved uh, meeting performers. I have great admiration for the performers, not, not only for their talent, but for their fortitude, because it's a, it's a very difficult life. Uh, I just loved everything about it, and that's that's what I wanted to do. If you just joined us, we're talking with Sheldon Harnick. Very pleased to have him uh, with us. He's, of course, award-winning, uh, legendary, you could call him, uh, lyricist. Uh, many Broadway works, including, uh, of course, probably the, the, the favorite, uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Also, She Loves Me, Fiorello, we've been talking about. Rex, which he did with uh, Richard Rogers, and uh, we're on tape in this part of the program. You can still comment at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. And we're going to take a brief break when we come back. More with Sheldon Harnick, including uh, his uh, beginning of his collaboration with Jerry Bach, and uh, much more. This is Brian Erickson and Bringing More to Life. Our parents may need us in ways that are very new to us. What is your role when a parent's abilities decline? An adult child's role is not to parent the parent, but rather to help your parent deal effectively with the changes that age brings. You are their advocate. You have the right to ask providers tough questions and take action. You are their partner and advisor. Assess the situation together, offer options and ask for their thoughts. Honor their wishes if doable. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. As part of Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune's Utah Public Insight Project, we are asking you to share your thoughts about fee increases at some of Utah's national parks, monuments, and historic sites. Will paying more make you want to visit less? Or do you feel a fee increase is necessary? How much are you willing to pay to party in our parks? Become a UPIN source. Go to upr.org. We're back with Sheldon Harnick legendary lyricist uh, and uh, a lyricist of Fiddler on the Roof, uh, She Loves Me, Fiorello, and uh, many other works, and uh, also a lyricist uh, for the work Rex, which is uh, composed by Richard Rogers. Uh, let me just jump ahead. We'll talk a little more in depth about Fiddler on the Roof, but uh, I wonder while you're here, are you, are you seeing uh, um, the, the Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater version of Fiddler on the Roof? I have, and it's wonderful. 
Uh, it was directed by Maggie Herrer, and it features Michael Ballam, uh, who runs the Utah Festival Opera, and uh, Michael plays Tevye, and he's wonderful. But the whole production is wonderful. And in fact, I have been just so impressed by the level of talent at the Utah Festival Opera. I've seen all four of the current offerings, <clears throat> the, two operang, uh, the two operas, and Fiddler and uh, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcut. They're all just superb productions. I, I'm so impressed by what goes on at that theater. And we'll get talking about Fiddler on the Roof. Um, by the way, do you, do you get tired of I, I, I'm sure every interview you, you have to talk about Fiddler. I do because it's obviously the, the most important work that I've done. Mm-hmm. And uh, I must say, when Jerry Bach and Joe Stein, who wrote the book, when we were working on it, we had no idea that it was going to turn out to be as important as it was. Hmm. Let's uh, talk about when you met Jerry Bach. Of course, he became very important in your life, you and his, uh, some great collaborations there. How did that happen? Well, as I said, Yip Harburg had said, as, uh, as well as writing your own music, uh, you can facilitate your career by working with other composers. Jerry had been working with a composer named Larry Holoff Center, and they had done a musical featuring Sammy Davis called Mr. Wonderful. And uh, I've never quite understood what happened, but uh, their collaboration broke up. So Jerry was looking for another lyricist. I had been called in to help out a show in trouble. It was a version of Shangri-La. And one of the performers in that was a wonderful performer named Jack Cassidy. Jack was a very close friend of Jerry Bach's, so he introduced me to Jerry. And we hit it off immediately. Uh, Jerry Bach's publisher, a man named Tommy Volando, accomplished an actual miracle. He got Jerry and me signed to do a new Broadway musical called The Body Beautiful, even though we had never written a song together. Now, can you imagine that? So, uh, but we did that show, and as I say, it was not successful, but Stephen Sondheim saw it, and he brought it to the attention of Harold Prince and his partner, a man named Bobby Griffith. They came to see it. Uh, In fact, they were there opening night, and Hal said, uh, he met us afterwards, and he said, I have trouble with the show, he said, but I like your work, and uh, I hope that Bobby and I will be able to work with you. And within a year, he had asked us to do the score for Fiorello. Mm-hmm. So Fiorello became your, your hit. That uh, was the hit. Uh, it was great fun to do. I remember the conductor of the show, while we were on our pre-Broadway tour in New Haven, he said, I have never been with a show that is so trouble-free. And he said, this is such a joy. We, did a, we, did a, we added a, a, a number of new songs, and we had some problems, but generally it was a, a wonderful experience. And in fact, uh, I worked with George, the director, George Abbott. Now, there's a, a man to whom the word legendary should be applied. He did the next show that Jerry and I did, Tenderloin. And in Tenderloin... I met my wife, who happens to be sitting across the table from me, Marjorie, and George Abbott was so taken with her talent that when uh, uh, Fiorello was still running and when one of the performers, one of the leads, left, he immediately took Margie out of Tenderloin and put her into Fiorello. Mm. So Fiorello tells the story of Fiorello LaGuardia, colorful New York mayor. tells the story of, yeah, the the colorful mayor of of New York. Uh, So it... uh, after the fact, it seems obvious, but when you're presented with these ideas, I guess this one might seem fairly obvious. He's a very colorful fellow. It might make a, a good musical. It was the idea of uh, a wonderful director named Arthur Penn. 
Arthur had been asked to do a documentary on television about LaGuardia. And while he was doing his research, he thought to himself, this man is so colorful, this should not be just a, a documentary, this should be a musical. So he took the idea to Griffith and Prince, and they bought it. Uh, and Arthur started doing the book, and it turned out he was not really qualified to do that. So Hal Prince, uh, who shared an office with George Abbott, came to Abbott. And Abbott at first said no. He said, uh, political musicals, they're boring. He said, somebody asked me to do a musical about Jimmy Walker, and uh, he was a weak man and uh, susceptible to corruption. And so I, I don't think so. And Hal Prince said the magic words. He said, George Fiorello had two romances. <laughs> And when Abbott heard that, he thought, okay, <laughs> that will do a musical. <laughs> uh, it's uh, one of the few musicals to win a Pulitzer Prize for drama. There are about four of them. Yeah. 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 Uh, so that uh, that was a breakthrough uh, for you. Uh, speaking of ideas that uh, when you're presented with them, they, they might seem problematic. Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, this is, of course, post-Holocaust. This is uh, what, the 1960s and a musical about... European uh, Jews, pogroms, exile um, might have seemed a bit problematic. Well, Jerry Bach and I did a lot of reading, looking for subjects for musicals. And somebody, I can't remember who, somebody sent me a, a big, thick book by Sholem Aleichem uh, called Wandering Star, which was about a Yiddish theatrical troupe uh, wandering around Eastern Europe. And I loved it, and I gave it to Jerry Book, to, uh, Jerry Buck, <laughs> Jerry Book, and he loved it. And we thought this should be a musical. Who would do it? And we thought of Joe Stein. So we sent it to him. Joe read it, and he said it is wonderful, but it's too big. There are too many characters. It covers too many years. It would be, it's too big a canvas to put on stage. But since we love this, the writing of this man, Shalom Aleichem, let's see what else he wrote that might make a musical. We read more stories by him, and we stumbled on uh, Tevye's Daughters. And when we read that, it was just so human. It was funny, it was human, it was warm, uh, it was interesting, and we thought this, would, uh, this could make a musical. Uh, when we started work on it, we thought if we do our job right and we capture the beauty of the stories, maybe it'll run a year or two, and it will have been worth it. We had no idea that it was going to turn into what it turned into. Hmm. And you had a little bit of trouble finding financial backers, right? Hal Prince, uh, we did a lot of backers auditions, and uh, a lot of the women who headed the, uh, the groups that bought theater parties, a lot of them were Jewish. And they were quite worried by the fact that there was darkness in the musical. At the end of the first act, there's a pogrom. At the end of the second act, there's an exile. And they were worried. Uh, they thought it might be difficult to sell tickets. And at the end of each audition, Hal Prince would get up and say, ladies, there's going to be a lot of humor in this. There's a lot of laughter. Joe Stein is noted for his comic scripts. And in the lead, we have a very funny man. We have Zero Mostel. Eventually, he did raise the money. But uh, we went to Detroit for our, our pre, the beginning of our pre-Broadway tour and discovered that there was a, a newspaper strike. So there were difficulties. Hmm. Um, and uh, I was listening to another interview that you gave. Uh, you tell an interesting story about uh, Harold Clerman, a, uh, a critic, and, and, and the meaning of, of Fiddler. Well, Harold Clerman was my favorite critic 
because not only did he do interesting reviews, but he gave you a lot of history connected with the authors and the plays that he wrote about. When he did his review of Fiddler in The Nation magazine, he said, uh, all my friends told me, they said, Harold, you should go see this. It's like a religious experience. He said, I went to see it, and I was disappointed. And then he said, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that uh, it wasn't a matter of being accurate about the lives of uh, the Jewish communities that these fellows were writing about, but people, the, the immigrants, the people who came to America, their memories were different. They were not accurate either. What they remembered was the sense of community, which was so important. And that's what this show captures. He said, so my initial impression was wrong. Mm. It's a wonderful musical. Mm. And I've never seen a critic do that, start out by saying it's not so good and end up by raving about it. Mm. And in a sense, uh, the stories of Sholem Aleichem and, and, and Fiddler, you're preserving the memory of, of some of these, a lot of these communities which are, which are gone. Well, our director, Jerome Robbins, told us that when he was six years old, his parents had taken him to Poland to the area where they came from. And Jerry remembered, even at the age of six, he remembered the experience as being very emotional. During World War II, when he read about these little villages such as the one he visited being exterminated, he was horrified. And when we asked him to direct uh, what became Fiddler on the Roof, he said, for me, it's an opportunity to put that culture back on stage, give it another 25 years of life. Mm -hmm. And it's been much more than 25 years. But Robbins was like a man obsessed. Mm -hmm. he, he did endless research uh, and, uh, and did an, an extraordinary job. Including, was it his suggestion to go to a Hasidic wedding? Yes, he took us to Hasidic weddings. He took us to holiday celebrations at various places. Uh, and things that he saw wound up in the show. For instance, I had never been to uh, ceremonies that were that orthodox. And I saw the velvet cord that separated the men from the women. I saw at a wedding, I saw the men uh, holding, picking up the groom, lifting him in a chair, and the women lifting up the bride sitting in a chair. Uh, at, uh, there was a man who came to all of these weddings and he wandered around with a bottle on his head. And ultimately that became the, the bottle dance. You know? mm -hmm. So uh, everything that Robin saw was grist for his mill. Mm. If you just joined us, we're talking with Sheldon Hardick. We're very pleased to have him for the Hour on Access Utah today. And, of course, we're talking about Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, Sheldon Harnick, a lyricist for She Loves Me and Fiorello and uh, many others. Uh, uh, Coyote Tales, maybe talk a little bit about that uh, with the uh, set music of Henry Mollicone. And also Sheldon Harnick has uh, provided English translations of opera libretti. Some, yes. Uh, so uh, that's an interesting experience we want to talk about as well. Uh, so we're talking with Sheldon Harnick uh, today. So you start out with Fiddler in Detroit. You go to Washington, I believe, uh, end up in New York. Um, and, uh, of course, going into it, you, you don't know. None of you know, right, that it's going to be the hit that it became? Well, uh, when we left Detroit, we didn't know. But when we got to Washington, uh, we saw a sight that was uh, it warmed my heart, but we, we couldn't understand it. We got to the theater to rehearse, and there was a long line of people waiting to buy tickets for Fiddler. And we thought, how can that be? There were no reviews in Detroit. It must be that everybody's called their friends and said, go see this show. And that was very encouraging. And then when we got to New York, we saw the same phenomenon. There was this long line of people waiting to buy tickets.
Uh, so it, um, it, ticket sales increase, and then by the end of your uh, scheduled run, uh, you're, you're selling out. Yeah. Uh, in Detroit, uh, that was another thing that chilled us. Hal told us that we had to stay in New York for five weeks. This was part of the deal he made with the theater owner. We had to be there for five weeks, but we only had a subscription for three and a half weeks. So the last week and a half we were there, there was not one ticket sold. But by the end of that run, we were selling out. Mm. Why do you think Fiddler hit? So it, it's still, it's, it's part of our consciousness. Uh, you can't escape it. Well, my own feeling is that it's because about something that it's, is so universal in the relationship between parents and children. Parents grow up uh, with a certain set of traditions, if you will, experiences. And as often as not, children tend to drift away from that. And it can be very difficult for parents to accept the fact that the children are not behaving in the way they expect them to or going in directions that they expect them to. This is universal. Fiddler has been done all over the world. And in every country, I think the, the, the uh, relationships between parents and children uh, are the same. And even beyond stage versions, the movie, uh, you've got Sunrise, Sunset at many weddings. Well, that's the other, aspect, the other aspect which I left out is that because of Jerry Robbins' insistence and making us rewrite, 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 uh, the show also has a wonderful book, a wonderful score, and those terrific dances of, of Jerry Robbins. So that also is important. Mm. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about collaboration between you and, and Jerry Bach. Do you, uh, I think uh, some teams do it uh, one way, some teams do it the other. Do you do lyrics first? He's, he sets those. Does he do music first? In our collaboration, it always started with music first. He would go into his studio, uh, he would write musical numbers, and then at a certain point he would send me a tape with anywhere from eight to a dozen numbers on it, and he would have a little preface, a spoken preface, saying, I think this is for the butcher, I think this is for Tevya, I think this is whatever it is. And on every tape, I would find maybe two or three pieces of music that just affected me so I couldn't wait to put lyrics to them. But somewhere along the line, I would have an idea for a song where I didn't want to be handcuffed by the music. I wanted the freedom to write it. And I remember the first time I gave Jerry a lyric, I wondered whether he could set a lyric as, as beautifully as he could write music first, and he could. Mm -hmm. And not only that, he was a wonderful editor. Uh, Jerry himself was a good lyricist, and when I gave him uh, a lyric, quite often he would say, you know something, these four lines make the song. Let's scrap the rest of it, and let's just go with these four lines, and you'll rewrite the rest. So it, it was a, 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 a very rich collaboration. Mm -hmm. Did you and Fiddler, or, or apply more broadly in other musicals, for example, uh, do you have anyone in mind? Did you have Zero Mostel in mind when you were writing some of these no, things? No, we or, always, comes later. Jerry and I always wrote for character, and then uh, inev invariably found the, the actor to uh, fit that character. Mm -hmm. And of course, Jerry, Jerry Robbins, because we actually, for Fiddler, we wanted an actor named Howard De Silva, who had been in, in uh, Fiorello and who was wonderful. But Robin said no. He said the character of Tevya is larger than life. He said Howard is wonderful, but he's just life size. I want somebody like Zero Mostel who's larger than life. Mm -hmm. which, he, which he certainly was. Zero <laughs> yes, <Mastel>. he was. <laughs> well, so um, when it came uh, time to, I think it was still running on Broadway, wasn't it, when, when they made the film? 
It was. Yeah, we ran on Broadway, I think, an additional year after the film came out. Yeah. Did you have any involvement in the film? Uh, the director, Norman Jewison, invited Jerry Bach and me to participate, but we had nothing to add to it. Whereas the book writer, Joe Stein, did the film script and went to Yugoslavia where the film was filmed. He participated. We did not. Did you have any uh, trepidations about a film version? No, I can't say that I did. Um, eventually, we were surprised that uh, he cut one song, but he knew that, it was very, that, that the film was very long. And also, for the character of the young revolutionary, they had cast a man who did not sing all that well. And eventually they realized that the song he was singing was not effective, mm. so they cut it. Okay. What, what did you think of the film? I loved it. Yeah. I just mm. uh, The first time I saw it, what disappointed me was that the man who played Tevye uh, was not uh, American, he's Israeli, and he, uh, English was his second or third language, so he was not as comfortable with the spoken humor as other people. And I was a little disappointed in that. But the second time I saw it, that didn't matter at all. I thought, oh, my goodness, he's wonderful. He's just mm. wonderful. Mm. Yeah. And, of course, with, with film, then everybody gets to see the, the musical. Yeah. And what, what Norman Jewison did was that he took a stage play and he made it into a genuine cinematic experience. Mm -hmm. The things, the film, I'll use the word, there is no such word, the filmic things that he did were just beautiful. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a bit about uh, Rex. Well, you know, skip ahead, you know, over several uh, musicals. Uh, this is a collaboration with Richard Rogers. Right. We did the show in 1976. It was not successful. We made a lot of mistakes. Thirty years later, a friend in New York who runs an off-Broadway theater, a theater that has a, uh, a that does a series of readings of unsuccessful shows, called and he said, "We'd like to do Rex." I called, uh, by that time, Richard Rogers had passed on, but I called the book writer, Sherman Yellen, and I said they would like to do a reading at this place. He said, oh, I know that place. I call it Tops and Flops. <laughs> and he said, we've we made so many mistakes. Do you want to see it on stage like that? And I said, no. And then he said, wait a minute. Ask your friend if he'll allow us to reexamine the show. Hmm. So I called my friend. He said, sure, take your time. Well, we looked at the show, and after 30 years, we thought we, we saw where the mistakes were, we worked on it. Now Michael Ballam has given us the opportunity to do a staged reading in front of an audience so we can see whether uh, the revisions that we've done are effective. Hmm. We've had a couple of productions. Uh, in each one, we've made more changes. And uh, for, this, uh, for this staged reading, we've made still more changes. Uh, and I think what we've got now is a very good show. And the, the, uh, if it's as good as we think it is, we want to persuade the Rogers and Hammerstein organization to put it into their licensing catalog so anybody can do the show. Hmm. This is about Henry VIII. It's about Henry VIII, and uh, it's mostly about Henry VIII and his first wife, Catherine, and his relationship with Anne Boleyn and his relationship with his children, especially Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. So uh, the revisions are mostly lyrical and to the book. Of course, the composer is gone. Um, along the way, since the, uh, my friend's production in New York, it was at something called the York Theater, uh, there, was a, 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 the, the main, there were two main changes. One, <clears throat> we had fallen in love 
with Elizabethan history. So there were altogether too many scenes that started out by saying, but sire, mm. if the French were to ally with the Spanish, you know, <laughs> we just cut that. We must have cut about 25 or 30 minutes of, of excess baggage. The other terrible mistake we made, Henry VIII uh, is known in history for trying desperately to have a son. His father had united England after some savage civil wars, and Henry was afraid that when he died, the, the country might split apart again. So he wanted a strong man on the throne. He had daughters, but he felt no woman could hold this, the uh, country together. And so he just turned England upside down in his quest for a son, uh, starting the Church of England so he could marry Anne Boleyn. Uh, and all that is in our show. But we forgot about, uh, we lost perspective. At the end of Act One, back in 1976, he has married Jane Seymour, and she's given him a son. 30 years later, when we looked at it, we thought, what a terrible mistake we made. All through the first act, we've said, I must have a son, I must have a son. At the end of the act, he says, I have a son. So I thought, people don't need to come back for the second act. He's had his son, that's fine. What we forgot to tell them was that his son was not going to live very long. And once that was put back into the show, then we had a second act. Mm -hmm. I wonder, speaking about revisions, there it seems like an all-or-nothing proposition for most Broadway shows. It's, you know, you're either, either hit or, or don't. Some shows have a chance to come back. Every so often, somebody will find a way to revise a show, uh, and and it will have a second life, and that's what we're hoping hoping for with uh, with Rex. As a matter of fact, we had a full production in Toronto uh, two years ago, and it went extremely well. We've learned things about it since then, but the uh, there was one review of it, and the first line of the review was, "Where has this show been?" Mm-hmm. We're talking with Sheldon Harnick on Access Utah today. We're on tape, this part of the program. You can still comment, however, at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, Sheldon Harnick, of course, a legendary uh, Broadway lyricist for Fiddler on the Roof, She Loves Me, Fiorello, uh, many others. We've been talking about Rex, which was his collaboration with Richard Rogers. We'll have more conversation with uh, Sheldon Harnick following this brief break. Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. Chance the Rapper is an artist from Chicago whose political jazz-inspired take on hip-hop is turning heads. Next time on Q, I'll chat with him about channeling music history while staying modern and why he insists on staying independent. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us Thursday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. What is a subject that you are passionate about? What do you know more about than most? Utah Public Radio wants you to share your knowledge and become a source for the Utah Public Insight Network, a new collaborative effort between UPR and the Salt Lake Tribune. Information you share could help our reporters create more in-depth stories on the things that you care about or more meaningful discussion on our flagship program, Access Utah. Become a source today. Join UPIN. For more information, visit us online at upr.org. We're back with Sheldon Harnick, legendary uh, Broadway lyricist. Uh, lyricist, of course, uh, uh, music uh, by Jerry Bach of uh, Fiddler on the Roof and Rex. It's the story of Henry VIII. Uh, it was uh, 
not as successful as the uh, composer and lyricist would have uh, hoped in, in its original run, but they're bringing it back, uh, fixing some things, and they hope to uh, give it new life. You can participate in this by attending the semi-staged reading of Rex. That's Wednesday at 1 p.m. in the Allen Echoes Theater, and that event is uh, free. Sheldon Harnick is uh, with us for another 10 minutes or so. We're pleased to have him in studio with us. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about uh, collaboration with uh, Richard Rogers. How, how was that? You were approached, I guess. Uh, Richard Rogers would like you to write some lyrics. What, what happened there? Yeah, uh, Rogers called, and of course, I, uh, unfortunately, Jerry Bach and I had split up. We had uh, severe artistic differences after the show we did called The Rothschilds. So when Rogers called and he said uh, another songwriter named Richard Adler uh, was producing this show about Henry VIII, and it was thrilling to uh, anticipate working with Rogers, but shortly before we were supposed to go into rehearsal, our producer, Richard Adler, called me and he said, the show may be off. I said, why? What happened? He said, Rogers has been taken to the hospital uh, for an operation for cancer of the larynx. So they removed his larynx. But uh, Rogers, being the man he was, as soon as he was able, he started to learn laryngeal speech. And by God, he managed to pull himself together and, and compose the score. He was just indomitable. I, I just loved that indomitability. Mm-hmm. Uh- and he, I, I understand, told you, I can work either way. Give me the lyrics first, or I can give you the music. He thought he could, but uh, as we later found out, uh, by the time I worked with him, Rogers had had strokes. He'd had any number of uh, physical problems. And a doctor told us, uh, because of some experiences I'd had with him, a doctor said, some of my stroke patients lose the ability to think abstractly. And Rogers, that happened to Rogers, so that he could not write music without having a lyric to set. Mm. We found that out. So every song had to come lyrics first in that show. And what I had to do was constantly to invent a variety of forms so that not every song would sound the same. Mm. But he was still wonderful. If I gave him a good lyric, he wrote a good song. If I gave him a bad lyric, which I've been known to do, and those are the ones we scrapped, Mm. uh, he would write something that was not as good. But Mm. he, he wrote some absolutely beautiful music for Rex. Tell me a little bit about Coyote Tales. It's a collaboration with Henry Mollicone. Well, Henry, uh, who I had met in Houston, I was down there for some reason, and I saw a wonderful, uh, intimate opera that Henry wrote called The Face on the Barroom Floor for an orchestra of three and a cast of three, and it's usually done in bar restaurants. And I was very taken with it. I met him. I was very taken with him. And he said, I'd like to work with you. And shortly after that, He had a commission from the Kansas City Lyric Opera, and he had an idea to do an opera uh, about the trickster tales. In fact, I wish we had named our opera that instead of Coyote Tales. Trickster Tales, I think, would be a little more colorful. But uh, it was great fun. We wrote the show. It was premiered at the Kansas City Lyric Opera, and we've had a couple of productions since then. Mm -hmm. Uh, Henry is a, a very talented man and a very sweet man. It was a joy to work with him. Now, you, you come to a new composer, and you, you've, you've worked with several composers. Uh, I guess there probably has to be a little negotiation, a little dance, so how you're going to work together? That's right. There's usually a lot of discussion about how you like to work. In, in the case of Henry, what he needed was vast swaths of text for an opera. It wasn't just like writing a song. There had to be a, uh, an actual 
skeleton of a libretto so he would know what the totality of the piece was so that he could uh, repeat themes, you know, bring them back, uh, vary them. Uh, it was a new way of working for me, but with, with his guidance, I managed to do, uh, I think, a very good libretto. Mm. And you have, you've translated into English opera libretti. I have more, I think, more operettas like The Merry Widow. That's been the most successful. No, I can't even say that. I think the other most successful one was Carmen. But from my point of view, it's been kind of the disaster that they now have these super titles in operas all over the country. Uh, they much prefer the, to do them in the original language and then let the audience read the supertitles. But before the supertitles uh, became kind of ubiquitous, I had had about 35 productions across the country of my translation of Carmen. Mm -hmm. So you, you say, it sounds like you don't like supertitles. <laughs> Not when they they take money away from me. I, I see. Uh, taking away some employment for you. I see. Right. Yeah, got you. Uh, and sometimes it is kind of nice to, to not have to look at the supertitles, to, to right. it in yeah. your language. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you see an opera and think, what a lovely reading experience that was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's certainly uh, some truth to that. Uh, tell me a little bit about your collaboration. I don't know if you had, uh, I'm talking about The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and you did the English translations of, of the lyrics. Yeah, my wife and I had met Michel Legrand. We were big fans of his singing as well as his arranging. And then what turned out, uh, uh, Michel and his collaborator on Umbrellas, they, had, they thought they were going to have a Broadway production. They had a European producer, and he raised all the money for the production. And then he took all the money for the production, and he went back to Europe, <laughs> leaving them high and dry. Mm. So um, Michel's representative took uh, went to the public theater and asked Joe Papp, who ran the theater, whether we could do uh, a reading of the show there or a production. And Joe said, I will give you money so that you can uh, hire a cast, do a reading for me, and if I like it, we'll do a production. And he liked what we did, and he did a production, uh, which was beautiful. You couldn't get a, couldn't get a ticket there. Hmm. So uh, that was the way I met and started working with Michelle who I love. Uh, so, of course, so many people love the film. Uh, do you think this this musical will have further life? Do you think? We've had a number of productions about it, yeah. I think the film is so easy to rent that uh, it, it helps to kill a certain number of productions. Mm. But we've had productions all over the country. You, you have a book. You have a collaboration, I think, with your wife. Well, that was the unexpected thing. My wife had been a painter, but uh, some years ago, um, our daughter gave her uh, the new digital camera. She fell in love with it and became an expert with it. And a couple of years ago, she showed me several hundred of the photographs she'd been taking, and I was just blown away. I thought, these are gorgeous. So we called our friend Jane Lahr, who has a literary agency, and we said, is there a book in this? And she said, well, uh, photograph books don't sell unless it, they're photographs about New York. And Margie said all of these were taken in New York. So uh, uh, Jane and her partner uh, found a publisher for us, Beaufort Books. They, uh, Margie, as I say, we had about 300 photographs. It was whittled down to about 90-some. And uh, I thought it might help if we organized all of those photographs into categories, and I introduced each category with a poem. And Jane thought that would be a good idea, too. So that's what we did. 
And if I do say so myself, it's turned into a, a gorgeous book. It's called The Outdoor Museum. It has a subtitle, Not Your Usual Images of New York. Mm. And when Publishers Weekly reviewed it, they said this is a uniquely sublime experience. Mm. You know, so it's, it's a good book. Where do people get a hold of it? Uh, they, can, they can order it at their local bookstore or from Amazon, any place that sells books. It's available. Mm-hmm. I wonder, uh, as you look at the... Um the scene today at Broadway. Do you, do you do you go to Broadway today? What what do you think of? Uh, have you uh, seen some shows that you like? Yes. Admire? Uh, when Jerry Bach and I broke up, uh, there were any number of producers who said, "Oh, this is terrible. Broadway needs you so badly." And we discovered that Broadway doesn't need any particular composing team. There are always talented people coming along. Uh, of course. Uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber was one of the most gifted of them. But since then, there have been uh, shows like Next to Normal. Uh, Tom Kitt wrote it. I at the moment, I'm blocking on the librettist. Um, we just saw Kinky Boots, which was wonderful. There are uh, the team of Lynn Ahrens and, uh, and her composer, Stephen Flaherty. They're terrific. They're, they always come along, thank goodness. And uh, it, it keeps the tradition of uh, musical theater in New York alive and flourishing. Hmm. In the same way you sort of sought out Harburg, do you have lyricists that uh, seek you out? Occasionally. Uh, I've worked with a number, but uh, the what I've been working on lately was something of my own. I, I was reading the plays of Moliere, and I read one called The Doctor in Spite of Himself, and I thought, ooh, this should be a musical. And I started to work with a composer on it, and it just didn't work out. He didn't understand what I was after. So I thought, well, for heaven's sakes, I'm going to try this myself. And so I finished it, and now I'm looking for That's my current musical. I'm looking for a producer for that. You, you composed it. I did, the, I did the music as well as the yeah. book and the lyrics. So this, this may open up some, some future projects for you as lyricist and composer? It could. I did a musical based on a Russian play called Dragons, and I've had a number of college productions of that. Uh, but what I discovered was that the original Russian play was so specifically aimed at Russians that Americans didn't entirely understand it. So I'm having to work on that and make it something that's uh, very understandable for an American mm-hmm. audience. That's a whole new experience, I would, I would imagine. The, the whole weight is on you. You don't have a partner. But. It is. It's, <laughs> you yeah. said it. Yeah. It's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably a good challenge. It is. It is. It's a, it's yeah. a wonderful challenge. Yeah. We are out of time. We've been talking with Sheldon Harnick. He is a legendary lyricist, uh, lyricist for Fiddler on the Roof and She Loves Me, Fiorello, and many others. Sheldon Harnick, a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And for uh, producer Bennett Purser, Uh, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening. Deseret News columnist Steve Eaton. It happened eight times, and I was there eight times to avert disaster. Without my intervention, poor, healthy people would have noticed years from now that something was wrong. Recently, I agreed to go to a place where I joined with other volunteers who were packing green beans into cans. These green beans would eventually be given to people who temporarily could not afford to buy their own green beans. I know I shouldn't brag, but I'm pretty sure that in four hours, our group of unpaid workers filled enough cans to meet the entire planet's demand for green beans until the end of the century, 
or the end of the next presidential election, whichever comes first. I think I may have been accidentally selected for an executive level position because I was higher than my coworkers as I stood on a metal walkway and because I didn't get a speck of green beans on me during my entire shift. My job was to watch literally thousands of open, empty cans go by on a conveyor belt. If one of them tipped over, I was to spring into action and quickly put it upright before it jammed up the machine and briefly cut off the supply of green beans to the rest of the world. In the beginning, I wondered if I'd be able to rise to the occasion if I was ever thrust into the middle of a tipping can scenario. When it happened the first time, I'll admit my heart raced. Eventually, I would intervene eight times in just one four-hour shift. After I had successfully dealt with several emergency can downturns, I became quite confident in my ability to think on my feet and deal with emergency situations. I adopted sort of a Bruce Willis, diehard, been there, done that mindset without taking off my shirt and getting all bloody and sweaty. I figured such unsanitary behavior would not be tolerated since we all had to wear these nets that made us look like we were Gumbies in a Monty Python sketch. In case you didn't know this, in Monty Python world, Gumbies are people who've had frontal lobotomies but still try to contribute in the workplace. You'll note I'm resisting the urge to write about certain presidential candidates here. It was an odd job because no one talked about synergy, proactive behavior, or the need to get outside the box. Forget getting outside the box. I wasn't even allowed to go over and show off my clean shirt to my splattered friends who were still in the box. That didn't stop me, however, from trying to introduce some office politics into the equation just to see what would happen. When the guy I was working with briefly walked away from his post to do a quick work-related chore, I called over a supervisor. Um, I really hate to tell you this, but um, Darwin, he's been holding secret meetings with my coworkers. I said to the supervisor, who was clearly not experienced in office politics, I think he's trying to organize a union you know, I can sort of understand where he's coming from. I've been working here for two hours now, and I have never gone on vacation. Another time, I called over a supervisor to offer the bright and innovative suggestion that we stop, because clearly we had canned more green beans than the world would ever consume. I did the math. About two out of every ten people like green beans. I'm one of those people. However, if you give me a full can of green beans, I'm good for six months or maybe a year. Who was going to eat all these green beans? I tried to explain that to a supervisor. It's probably a good thing it was hard to hear by the can conveyor belt, or I might have been demoted to a more slippery position. I think because I was a green bean executive, I couldn't stop analyzing and looking at the big picture. I began to suspect something was amiss. For example, I observed that if I looked up from my can alignment job, there was a giant clock on the wall. I noticed several times that 20 minutes or more would go by before the clock would budge a minute. I assumed someone was tinkering with the clock and observing us because they made us take off all our watches and leave our cell phones behind. I'm guessing we were probably unknowing participants in a green bean psychological test facility. I'm sure they were playing mind games with us. I respect people who work real jobs in factories that demand that they stay put and produce things all day, especially those things that we want to eat to stay alive, like Cheetos. They don't get enough credit. I thought just four hours of work and no phone with a broken clock was difficult enough. The experience changed me. Now I've seen the harsh reality of good cans on their side. I've gone four hours without a cell phone so that others in need can experience green beans. I don't want thanks or praise. Just do this for me. 
If you ever decide that you want to go give green beans to those who can't afford them, just make sure the cans are right side up. If such cans are to fill their purpose properly, then we must all be vigilant. The truth is, saving just eight cans is not enough. This is Steve Eaton. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn how one young Scottish woman journeyed 4,536 miles to Utah as part of the most remarkable travel experiment in the history of Western America. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Christina McNeil was born in Glasgow, Scotland in 1831 into hard economic times. She began working in a factory when she was seven years old and lost her father at 15. Two years later, Christina joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a decision that would see her journey to another continent for a new life. Christina's family did not embrace her newfound faith, so she went to live with Margaret Caldwell, a local widow and fellow convert. After years of saving and with the help of the church's perpetual emigration fund, they were able to join a group of converts who sailed from Liverpool, England to the United States. The church's perpetual emigration fund was created to support the travel of converts to Utah. Nearly 16,000 Europeans came between 1849 and 1855, first by boat, then by rail to Iowa, and finally to Utah by ox-drawn wagon. By the time Christina made her voyage in 1856, the church had lowered the trip costs by providing handcarts that were drawn by migrants themselves. Christina accompanied Margaret and four of her children in the Willie Handcart Company, traveling on foot the 1,350 miles from Iowa City to the Salt Lake Valley, pushing their belongings in a large two-wheeled cart. The Willie Company left late in the season, ran low on supplies, and encountered harrowing weather. On that four-month trek, many succumbed to frigid temperatures and starvation. Christina had an opportunity to spare herself that suffering when an army officer at a trading post tried to convince her to stay with him and forsake what he saw as a perilous and pointless endeavor. Instead, Christina remained true to her faith and purpose and completed her journey to the Salt Lake Valley. As one of nearly 3,000 men, women, and children who trekked west in 10 handcart companies, Christina McNeil was part of what one historian called the most remarkable travel experiment in the history of Western America.